1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. The seasons they are a changing. It happened overnight, didn't it? It went from being. I know. Balmy to, uh, to needed to put the heating on. You kind of quite like this, don't you? I do like the autumn, yes. Also, I don't know if this was true when you lived in the States. And I know the part of the States you live, Massachusetts, is, is very... Foliage. Very autumnal, yeah. The foliage is very famous. Beautiful. You know what I mean by foliage, don't you? Yes, I know what foliage is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I left school at 16, but I, I think my vocabulary is okay. No, I just think foliage is not a very common word. It reminds me of that Susie
3: Dent thing we did about words that we don't get used there very much anymore. Okay, okay. Do you have fond memories of the foliage? Yeah, I always found the foliage a bit boring.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the trouble is, it's like not really a kid's thing, foliage. Maybe not. No, maybe it's something you appreciate more in the the autumn of your years. (laughs) Are we not in the autumn of our years, are we? Uh, I don't think these
3: are summer days. Aren't we late summer? But I think I interrupted you on the foley. But you,
2: you did. And what I was going to ask you is, <laughs> did, did the Americans of your acquaintance decorate the house with a gourd display in the autumn? Oh, gourd. I thought you were going to ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Because my, my wife, who is um, American, she insists that it's part of her culture, to leave gourds strewn around the house at this time of year. Can I just say, what is a gourd, <laughs> in truth? I, th- I think it's like knobbly squashes. <laughs> I mean, really, I just don't... A fleshy, typically large fruit with a hard skin, some varieties of which are edible. You, you will have seen that. The- there's often a bowl of tiny pumpkins and squashes <laughs> and these knobbly deformed gourds on the table... And, and you might have thought, oh, they're going to be having something revolting for dinner tonight. But but no, they they just sit there from, I guess, like the end of September until late November in various states of decay. Do they
3: go sort of mouldy? Yes, a little bit. Where do you procure your goods from? I know that's what all of our listeners are desperate to know. Well,
2: I don't involve myself in the procurement process. <laughs> the import export. Yes. Of course, but but this year it's escalated. Oh no! Because she's decided that the gourd display shouldn't just be an interior thing; it it should be exterior, outside your house. Yes, and and I love the creativity, but she doesn't necessarily have an eye for these things. <laughs> That's a lot sort of backhanded. <laughs> <one. laughs> oh, I love the creativity.
3: That's what you say to her. You don't need to say it to okay, me. Of course, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, going to yeah. be offended. <laughs>
2: So 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 she initially went out and just bought one pumpkin like an enormous pumpkin
3: that's not a gourd and,
2: and she put it on the front doorstep and said that was that's not that a was an autumnal display and I said I don't think that constitutes a display that that looks to me like Amazon tried to deliver a pumpkin and we weren't home and they just left it there so this has now multiplied. She's been adding to it over recent days. And now I'd say there are about a dozen squashes, small pumpkins and gourds littering our front doorstep. All on the doorstep? Yes. How do people get past them? You have to kind of shimmy, they have to shimmy climb way over them. in. Yes, yeah. You have to straddle a gourd yikes and you don't have any memory of this from when you lived in massachusetts
3: i think maybe like a pumpkin outside people's uh, house maybe i mean trick-or-treat is like a, i know we're a bit early for trick-or-treat but trick-or-treat is a very big thing in the U. I mean i i would never done trick-or-treat in britain before i i didn't I hadn't i'm not even sure if i'd heard of it actually uh, and then I was in 1977, I was living there as a kid in the US, and uh, it's taken very, very seriously, even more seriously than it is taken now, which is obviously it's now taken much more seriously than it was 40 years ago here. But yeah,
2: and I feel like it's really killed off Bobbing for an Apple and Penny for the Guy. Yeah, Penny for the Guys. You don't see anyone doing Penny for the Guy, do you? No, and I'll be honest, I don't miss it. <laughs> it wasn't that great. What was the Apple thing? Bobbing for apples. So you get a big bin full of water and then people would have to try and get off out of it with their face. Was that an autumn tradition? I think so. It all feels like it. it, it belongs around the... Same period of time, and it's been um, Americanized. It's been Americanized.
3: Now, are you going to be in the US
2: for Halloween? We're going to be in the US for some of half-term visiting family, but yeah. um, I think we're going to be back for Halloween. Oh, oh here's another thing as well. So, you've got to dress up as a druid well, or something for Halloween. That I wouldn't mind. So, yeah. so when you think of a Halloween costume, what, what are you thinking of? Skeleton, ghoul, yeah, which is spooky. Spooky things, right? Yeah, spooky. Yeah, but in the states. They, they just treat it like fancy dress. Right. So it doesn't have to have any kind of witchy, horror ghoulish quality at all. Fine. Sarah can do what she wants. But she's also impressed this on Eugene. And due to things that I've foisted on Eugene over the years, he wants to go for Halloween as Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, what,
2: what, and and, and yeah, we didn't want to discourage him. So Sarah's bought him a Sergeant Pepper suit. Off the internet. So, all these other kids are going to be dressed up as, I don't know, (laughs) a a Harry Potter or a werewolf or something.
0: And then Gene's going
2: to knock on the door dressed as Paul McCartney on the Sgt. Pepper cover.
3: Well, I think that's about individuality,
2: Jeff. There's such a thing as too much individuality, though. Isn't, Isn't this an occasion when a bit of conformity wouldn't go amiss? Maybe there's some way you can have a sort of ghoulish element to the paul mccartney thing i mean there was that conspiracy theory that he died and that there were lots of clues including the cover to sergeant pepper so may- maybe that's the halloween connection what are you going to be dressed as i was thinking maybe george harrison <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> right should we talk about what we're talking about this week i am so excited when rachel suggested this i just sort of I jumped at the chance. Do you think she suggested it as a little treat for you? Trick or treat. Um, and I know you're so keen on this episode. We are talking about cold water swimming, or wild swimming, or open water swimming. Now, we have done it before, but this is going to be new and improved. Redux. Redux. Um We're going to be looking into how it's become so popular, into some of the benefits, how to stay safe when you're doing it. I was having a cold shower this morning and I thought I must ask our guests whether this is a good acclimatisation technique because I always have a cold shower now in the mornings. Um, We're talking to Kate Rue, who is founder of the Outdoor Swimming Society, which has got incredible. It's like 166,000 members. unbelievable And she's got lots of interesting thoughts on the growth of open water swimming. We'll be welcoming back Professor Mike Tipton, will tell us about the science behind cold water emotion. I saw a experiment they did on somebody dunking them in some 12-degree water. I must say, it did make me think, what am I up to? Uh, and then finally, we're talking to journalist, author, and former Hampstead uh, Women's Pond lifeguard, Nell Frizzell, about her love of swimming. Oh, she's great. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I have something for... We like to watch. Oh, what is it? Lessons in Chemistry.
2: Aha, yeah, this is this is
3: quite new, isn't it? It's quite new, as you would expect with me. It, it's based on a book, um, and basically it's about a female scientist in America in the 1950s and the prejudice she faces about being a scientist. She pe- appears to become a sort of award-winning TV chef using her science but i've only watched the first episode uh-huh. it's brie larson i think she's my favorite actor named after a cheese yeah, exactly uh um anyway so as justine said to me last night as we watched the end of the first episode it's kind of nice and unthreatening you know what i mean so it's not got any of you your triggers in it it's got no politics well it has got politics obviously in a way but it's not about the law It's it's just kind of Nice and easy. Great, I'll give it a look. What's your reason to be cheerful?
2: Well, I've taken a leaf out of your book. When, when the world feels particularly bleak, I know sometimes yeah. you treat yourself to um, cute animal videos. Oh, yes. And I have recurated my Instagram feed so that it now is, is mainly videos of unlikely animal friendships. Oh, unlikely. Animal friendships are so fantastic, aren't they? Give me your favourite. Well, um, you know, I I like them all. I like it if you see a a goat who's friends with a tortoise or whatever. Um, (laughs) uh, There there was one the other day where there was a, a chicken and a rabbit riding on the back of a dog, but I'm not sure how much the dog was enjoying it. And then I did see one which was claiming that a dog had formed a friendship with a fish, but... Again, I'm I'm not sure how consensual it was for the fish. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny you should say this
3: because Stu- I think it's Stuart Heritage who writes in The Guardian had something about a Netflix series called Baby Animal Cam, oh. which is too... Two hours of just live pictures from, I think it's from a zoo in America, of baby animals. And they basically play it without
2: any narration. Wow. Well, between that and Lessons in Chemistry, I think that's next week's They Like to Watch podcast sorted. Maybe you could interview one of the animals.
0: (laughs) Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: To start our conversation,
3: I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Kate Roo, who is founder of the Outdoor Swimming Society, author of the Outdoor Swimmers Handbook, and I think you boast, is it hundred and
4: something thousand members now, Kate? Is that right? I think it's over 200,000 now, actually. It's over
0: gro- 200,000 <laughs> now. Yeah, wow. yeah it just
4: keeps growing uh, and growing. And I mean, I think on the last survey by Swim England, there was actually 7.2 million people in the UK who swam outdoors. So we've only got a fraction of the wow. entire audience. What, that is quite an audience. And, and what, do we know what it would have been a few years back? Well, when I started the Act Swimming Society in 2006, it felt like hardly anyone was doing it. You know, there might have been people emerging from their beach huts into their regular swim spots, but it it wasn't a trend. And when people started talking about wild swimming and calling it that, people used to write letters to me and say things like, you know, thanks for giving me an identity before I was just the odd guy in the office that went into lakes, you know, and now I'm a wild swimmer. So, I mean, I would sort of say that, that there's been a huge change in the last 17 years is um between hardly anyone doing it or people are doing it very locally to it being recognized now or seen as you know a lifestyle and something that you might want to orientate your life around i
2: certainly consider myself in that category what what were the point where, where are the spikes where, where are the step changes post pandemic possibly
4: Well, there's definitely been one there. I mean, I think originally it was like David Williams doing the channel and there was Roger Deakin's waterlog and then we had a 10K swim in the Beijing Olympics. And there was quite a lot of things that were going on that just meant that it went into the public consciousness that this was something that you could do. And the idea of it being dirty, dangerous and illegal to it being something kind of delightful, free and something that you might want to try and do. I think that all happened in the... The early years. And then, yes, the pandemic was a massive boost because with the instruction that you could go outdoors um, for an hour a day and all the swimming pools shut, I mean, people just flocked to their rivers and lakes in huge numbers.
3: Maybe you could just tell us because there's lots of different terms used, wild swimming, outdoor swimming, cold water swimming. Just give us a little sort of beginner's guide.
4: We use the term outdoor swimming because it encompasses anyone who's swimming outdoors without a roof, i.e. a Lido swimmer, an open water swimmer. They might be the more athletic, competitive swimmers and the wild swimmers. Your wild swimmers are doing it for nature. Your open water swimmers are often doing it for competition. Your outdoor swimmers can be doing a whole variety of things and your winter swimmers actually sometimes are swimming but in fact that term is getting misused a lot that a lot of time it's dipping it's about cold water therapy it's not actually about swimming you've got a lot of people just getting in and lingering i don't know if that's what you're doing ed in the ponds when you're waiting to like set records are you you lingering (laughs) are you lingering or are you i'm not a lingerer
3: i'm a swimmer (laughs) And what made you set up the Outdoor Swimming Society? Because you carried on outdoor swimming into adulthood, had you?
4: Yes, yeah, yeah. I carried on doing it, but then there came a point where I started doing it more and I met a friend who wanted to go traveling around doing it. And when I began talking to people, I was in a freelance office in London at the time, and I discovered a third of the people in that office also swam outdoors all the time, but no one was having the conversation. I never intended the society to go on this long. We basically just wanted to do a few charity swims to, as kind of stunts to get more people into it, just because we had a basically excess of sort of missionary zeal. You know, we really love doing it. And we're like, It'd just be really nice to share this. And actually, so many people keep coming on board who want to share that swim love that it's just continued.
2: And how much of it has been driven by all the talk about the health benefits?
4: Well, from our point of view, not very much. I would say the Outdoor Swimming Society is is for people who just love it for loving its sake. It's a very amateur thing. And in a way, I found all of the health thing. This might sound really horrible to say, but it's almost a bit disappointing because swimming gives you a very natural contact with nature. It gives you a very natural high. If it's something you're passionate about, you feel an immense sense of freedom and joy from it. But, but it's another step to selling it back to people is something that does that. You know, if you're drawn to water and you want to get in, then it's fantastic to turning it into something else that we consume for our own benefit almost misses the point. I just think, you know, our society is there to give people the information and inspiration they need to swim. But it very much about self-responsibility. Does this make you feel good? Does this appeal to you? Do you want to do it? Great. Then here are all these other people that have got a load of ideas for you. But we're not trying to persuade anyone to do it to make themselves better. And I think it's a very different angle to come from.
2: We did an episode on access to nature a while ago, and the percentage was was so low. the The stats that they had was uh, you can only swim in three percent of rivers.
4: That's not actually right. It's quite complicated. That's a simplification. The non tidal stretches of rivers is something like three percent. Basically, what we have now is that the the our rights to swim are a hodgepodge. So, as swimmers, we can assume the right to swim. And actually, it's not legally clear that we don't have it um, in lots of places other landowners can assume we don't have the right to swim. But again, it's not it's not clear that the law is on their side. And I think now swimming is so popular and there's so many people doing it. And there's this real cry to give us the right to roam and the right to swim. Then what we're looking for is greater legal clarity, starting, for example, with reservoirs. I mean, I think getting a right to roam might take a while, although it's great that Labour say they're going to do it if they get in. But in Scotland in 2003, the Land Reform Act gave swimmers a to swim in eight hundred reservoirs overnight. If we had a piece of legislation like that, then we would get two thousand more places that we were legally allowed to swim overnight, which would be fantastic. You know, they're often inland wow. bodies of water, they're near large cities, and what's not to love really.
2: Yeah.
3: And how much is you know the pollution in rivers, sewage and all that an issue?
4: Well I think all swimmers would love to be swimming in crystal clear pure water there's been a lot of distorted messaging around sewage and swimming in order to raise the sewage problem up the political agenda and when we surveyed our members we found out that people logged one incident of sickness in every 9,024 swims okay so you know we've had people that are swimming like all our lives um all in all types of water and never got sick so 100% we want clean water. There are some places that are really affected. There's also many places that aren't. But I suppose the crucial thing is that as a swimmer, you're not as vulnerable to getting sick as the messaging is making out. It's just people aren't so bothered about river ecosystems as they are about the yuck factor of swimming in sewage. And that's why it's become such a popular story. We give people information on how to stay well, and it's really simple. <laughs> don't swallow the water. Don't get in if it looks icky. Wash your hands before you start eating. Do head-up breaststroke. Dry your ears afterwards. Cover your cuts. We just sort of help people by giving them the information.
2: And and if you're a novice, I mean, is it as simple as you know, just jump straight in? Or at this time of year, for example, is it is it better to wait out the winter until it gets a bit warmer?
4: That's one of the shocking things that's happened in the last couple of years. So winter swimming used to be something that people only did after two or three years of being a summer swimmer. And then gradually they just didn't want to give it up and they sort of get further and further into autumn. Whereas what we've seen since COVID is people actually beginning their outdoor swimming (laughs) journeys in the middle of winter. So I guess it's really just up to the individual. But there are risks of swimming in cold water. So, I mean, you do need information on your side if you're going to begin in winter.
2: You need to tell this one that because he's very competitive and when it gets really cold, Ed, you like to be the one who's staying in that
4: pond the longest. I'm used to it. Sounds like Ed maybe knows what he's doing. Nobody's ever said that about me before. (laughs) I think it's a very weird sort of society thing we've got going on at the moment. People have become really competitive about cold, but not about heat. You know, we don't really have much of a culture of who can sit in the sauna for longer in this country. But um, since Wim Hof, there's a lot of competition about being really tough. I'm not tough at all. So I don't take part in any of that kind of nonsense. In fact, it's been such a liberation to me to just decide that I only need to stay in for a minute or two over winter. And now now I'm quite enjoying myself.
3: You swim throughout the winter, do you, Kate?
4: I am an episodic winter swimmer um, in that I don't really love long swims during winter. They leave me feeling cold all day. And I think this is a message that I would really like to get across about winter swimming. There's been so much about how good it is for your mental health. And sometimes people feel the cold is such a purifier that if they're going through a difficult time in their lives, you know, they get into cold water and all the grief or the anger or the anxiety or whatever it is just like flows down the river past them. So there is that story and we're hearing that a lot. But honestly, I think there's far more people who get in and just find it cold, unpleasant and draining. And in a crisis, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in a crisis moment of their life, sometimes you need to be really gentle with yourself. You know, you don't necessarily always need to go and sort of flex your stoic muscles. So just just do what feels right for you, I think. I went to Finland last year and got to take part in the going between a sauna and an ice pot.
3: Ah, is this contrast therapy? Is that what they call it?
4: Yes, but of course they don't call it contrast therapy. They just finish yeah. people having a sauna and they haven't packaged it up as another wellness yeah. trend. But, um, but I suddenly realised that this was for me. As long as I can get hot again afterwards then I do enjoy the freshening kind of cold and I and I feel quite brave for getting in because I mean it's a challenge below six degrees, isn't it? It's it's a physical assault, you know. And so
3: the finish thing is you go into the cold water and then you go into a sauna, is that right?
4: Yeah, it's up to you which order you do it in and where you finish. But I stayed with some artists over there in the sort of grandma's family cabin and an entire evening would be spent going between the ice pot and the sauna. It was just fantastic. And by the end of it, I kind of feel like human honey. You know, you feel so relaxed by the whole experience. And I did come home thinking, us Brits have been really stoic. But, I mean, we just go to, in Somerset, murky, muddy rivers, slip down the bank, you know, freeze in the water, come out, freeze in the cold air, and then shuffle off home again. I sort of think if we got into this sauna thing, we could be giving ourselves a bit more of a treat. How long do you stay in the ice water for in finland then only a couple of minutes i mean it was well as you would expect yeah. it was only just above freezing i had to carve through half a meter of ice to even create the pot that we all got in
2: Kate, can i ask you if do you see a lot of diversity across outdoor swimming because something we've we've talked about quite a lot actually on the podcast is w- when it comes to enjoying nature Often it's not reflective of the class and ethnic makeup of the country.
4: I live in the west of England where 98% of people are white, so there's not much ethnic diversity here in the first place. If you go up to somewhere like Sheffield where they have, there's a huge movement there to swim in reservoirs, obviously you see an awful lot more diversity there. I think the biggest thing is that you can't swim outdoors until you can swim. And what we do have in this country is absolutely appalling rates of people being taught to swim now when they are children. And there's a huge ethnic disparity in the children that are learning. And basically, if you've got white, middle class, reasonably affluent parents who swim, you're quite likely to end up swimming. If you're just reliant on state provision of swimming lessons, then you might not. One of the things about swimming that I love is that it is so age irrelevant you know you can do it as a child but my swimming buddy's 20 years older than me and she's 73 and we're going on 10k swim adventures all the time and i think you don't get that in so many sports kate it's brilliant to talk to you we love the outdoor swimming society
3: maybe jeff and i will go on location to finland at some point kate rue thanks so much
4: thank you
0: for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: All right, next, we welcome back to the pod Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at the University of Portsmouth, Professor Mike Tipton. Hello. Hello there. It's Dr. Mike. It's Dr. Mike. <laughs> Dr. Mike. <laughs> he's back. And uh, He's very giddy about seeing you again. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's been a couple of years, I think. There's so
3: many questions. And also, I, you know, I tried to get his mobile number, Jeff, to get, to get constant <laughs> advice about my cold water swimming. But for some reason, he blocked my number. Yeah, yeah. He emailed Rachel <laughs> to say,
2: uh, under no circumstances, yeah. pass on this number to, to Ed. Um, it, since it was a couple of years ago, will you just remind us about your own experience as a, a cold water, a, a open water swimmer? Uh, limited is the summary of that. Uh, we've
5: spent 40 years uh researching what happens when people go into cold water initially particularly from a hazardous perspective because you know we are we still lose somebody every 30 hours in the UK to cold water immersion a child a week so we've we've always been driven to try and keep people safe in the background however has always been this idea of taking to the waters for your health whether and some towns in the UK like Brighton and Penzance exist because of that I mean, and going right back, even the Romans had a frigidarium, which was the cold bath, which people could go into. Thomas Jefferson, Darwin, Florence Nightingale, Hippocrates all talk about cold as a as a beneficial effect. But that was always me, in the me, background. Me as well. Miliband. And, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Darwin, Darwin and Miliband said uh, <laughs> that, that it's good for you. And it took off, of course, during during lockdown. Uh, our local club in Parenporth here went from 25 to 1,000 members.
3: Now, let's start with the physiological effects, Mike. When you get into cold water, and I did actually watch last night a video of you doing this to somebody at 12 degrees, and I thought, gosh, that's what's happening, and he, he didn't look very happy. And that's what obviously happens to me, although we'll come on to acclimatization in a minute. But what processes are happening in your body when that initial immersion happens?
5: So everything you experience is driven by a sudden cooling of the skin. And about 0.18 millimeters below the surface of the skin, you have lots of cold receptors, about four times more cold receptors than warm in the skin. That output from those cold receptors, the dynamic response to the sudden change in skin temperature, drives that gasping hyperventilation, blood pressure shoots up, workload placed on the heart goes up, lots of stress hormones released. It's part of the fight or flight response that is totally inappropriate in water, but prepares you to run away or fight on land. After that, that, that peaks in about the first seconds of immersion. But as the cold receptors get um, used to, to the cold water, they adapt to the new temperature. Once that's gone away, then your next tissues to cool are your superficial nerves and muscles. Those in the, the limbs are particularly susceptible. And that's where we'll see maybe after as little as 10 minutes in very cold water, people starting to swim fail. Can, you know, they start to feel stiff and they find that they're getting more upright in the water and their swimming is less efficient. You're not going to become hypothermic even in the coldest water, as an adult, in less than thirty minutes. So most of the problems, most of the risks which open water swimmers face, that go in for a few minutes, are to do with skin and superficial nerve and muscle cooling.
2: Is it better to get yourself in very, very slowly, like you know, just like your ankles go in, and then dip your elbows in, and start just like splashing a bit of water on your chest? Yeah, uh, physiologically, yes. Psychologically. It's
5: it's a bit more of a challenge going in incrementally. But that response I've just described, the cold shock response, is bigger the faster you go in and the more of the body surface area that's exposed. So going in quickly will produce a bigger cold shock response
3: than going in slowly. Can I just ask, so talking about my own personal experience, which of course I never do on the podcast, but just on this occasion, Jeff, you'll allow me. I was in last weekend and it was 15, and I actually found 15 Absolutely fine, where I don't think I would have found 15 fine a few years back. I mean, presumably, the more you do it, the more you get acclimatized. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We've done studies looking
5: at how long it takes as well. Uh, So, in terms of the cold shock response, you can acclimatize. It takes as few as six, two or three minute immersions in cold water, and you can halve that cold shock response, and you can feel a lot more comfortable as a result. That reduction is still reduced by about 25% 14 months later. Well, we couldn't get anybody. We'd run out of friends 14 months later. So <laughs> no, nobody would come back after that. The dangerous bit about that habituation is even though the cold shock response will... I mean, when we have people like Lewis Pugh come to the lab because he does so much swimming in, in really cold water. When, he, when you put him into cold water and you look at the, all the medical traces, you can't actually spot where he went in. I mean, he's actually completely lost. That, that wow. shock cold shock response. But the word of caution is that you don't adapt to that physical incapacitation that follows once you get skin and nerve cooling. And also the other problem is that the fact that you feel more comfortable means that you can overstay your welcome because you do feel more comfortable and you sort of think, well, I'll keep going. And what you've developed there is what we call a hypothermic adaptation to cold, where your body temperature can be cooling, but you just don't notice it because
3: you've dissociated your body temperature from how you feel. This is all sounding a bit grim. So you're suggesting there are sort of physical limits for how long you should be in, which are irrespective of how often you've done it before. Is there any kind of guide you can offer to that? Well,
5: the number one thing that comes from the stories we've just talked about is don't rely on how you feel and try and limit your duration by time um, rather than by any perceptual aspect. I think that probably the, the benefits that come from doing cold water immersion come from actually the first couple of minutes. So if you wanted to do this as little as you needed to do, I think you probably only need to be in for a couple of minutes just to evoke that dynamic response from the skin receptors. If you're in water temperature, that's, let's say, average for the British Isles, which is 12, then you've probably got... 15 to 20 minutes before you start to feel that physical incapacitation so the other thing is if you start if your limbs start to feel stiff if you're not moving as smoothly through the water if you're getting more upright in the water then
2: that's a really good sign to leave can i ask about um you know with all the claims made about the benefits of it i mean there are all kinds of reasons to enjoy open water swimming of course but empirically is there any benefit that you wouldn't get from a couple of minutes in a cold shower followed by whatever your regular choice of indoor exercise is that's a slanted anti-cold water swimming question (laughs) (sighs) i'm
5: right in the middle of it between risk and and benefit and so i would say probably not although a cold shower is not as potent a stimulus as an immersion there is an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence out there that this is of benefit for various things. And okay, anecdotal evidence in scientific terms is the weakest form of evidence, but it is still a form of evidence. And I meet literally thousands of people like Ed who, you know, have something positive to say about cold water immersion. And you can even go on to say a placebo effect is still an effect. The problem we've got in the scientific side is that, of course, if you ask somebody who's doing something if it's good for them, they'd be pretty stupid to say <laughs> it's not. Because the next follow up question is, well, why are you doing it? <laughs> if you look at the science, there was a good paper published, those are interested in the scientific uh, aspect, on a review that started off, it's published in Act of Physiologica this week, actually. It started off with 931 articles on open water cold immersion. And after it had taken out those that were not particularly providing useful evidence, they were left with 42 articles, 24 of which were of some use. Of those 24, 15, there was high concern that it was biased study some concern in four, and that left five. Three of them were to do with post-exercise immersion and its benefits for you, which is nothing to do with what we're talking about. And two had some positive benefits in terms of cognitive aspects. And interestingly, you know, the studies that have been done now asking people what the benefits of cold water immersion are, are much more to do with mental health and well-being than they are to do with physical so uh, rather a long way away from your question. But I think that probably there's something going on with mental health and clearly that cold shock response alerts, awakens you, sets you up for the day does because you're pouring adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol into the system. I think the, the jury is still out when it comes to inflammatory responses, immune function and other, and other
3: aspects.
2: You see, Ed, Ed just heard all that and he wants you to send him those two articles. You're now. sounding a little bit – I mean – you're sounding
3: quite sceptical, Mike. You're very worried about the dangers of people doing things in a kind of cavalier way, basically.
5: Correct. So I'm, I, what I'm being is not sceptical. I'm, I'm being agnostic and, yeah. and cautious. And what we need is the proper randomised controlled trials done. Uh, whilst, um, if if people think it's good for them, who am I? I'm not yeah. going to come along as the fun police and say, don't do it. Yeah. But what I am going to say is be aware of the dangers Make sure that before you do it, you're fit and healthy enough to do it. I don't agree with Wim Hof when he speaks into a camera and says anyone can do this. Yeah. And
3: so the biggest thing for our listeners is you're not saying don't do it. But what what's the sort of biggest do's and don'ts for, for our listeners? We're a tropical animal. We want to be naked in
5: 28 degree air. If you take that tropical animal and you plunge them into 12 degree water, that is incredibly stressful. And just as you wouldn't go and buy a pair of training shoes and the first thing you do run a marathon, don't do the equivalent in terms of open water swimming go and have a health check check you're okay be aware that you know there are certain conditions that you really don't want to put that sudden strain on your heart and cardiovascular system for go with a reputable group i do a lot of work with blue tits which are a big group uh, around the uk and, and in europe now and they're really good they promote safety they get people to do this in a safe way Do it incrementally. If you can start in the summer, if you need to wear a wetsuit, do it and then gradually build your resilience up. But try not to stay in for more than 10 minutes. As I said, don't rely on how you feel.
3: And when you get out, get properly rewarmed before you do something like, you know, drive your car. Such good advice, Professor Mike. Maybe one day you'll give me your mobile uh, in the meantime. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. Nice to see you again. To finish our conversation and give us some cheer i'm delighted to say that we're joined by nell frizzell who is journalist author of the panic year square one and holding the baby and a affirmed outdoor swimmer nell thank you so much for joining us
6: thank you for having me affirmed i like not confirmed i didn't do that bit of the swimming
3: (laughs) affirmed and confirmed tell us about how your love of outdoor and cold water swimming began
6: Well, I grew up in Oxford and none of us would have set a toe in the River Thames back in the late 80s, early 90s. But then I moved to London after university and discovered something you'll be very aware of, Ed, the Hampstead Ponds and completely fell in love. I was a swimmer at the Ladies' Ponds and then had this magical moment about sort of five years in of swimming all year round Amongst these incredibly hardy eighty-year-olds who just put me to shame, I got a kind of sly nod from one of the lifeguards who sort of sidled up to me on their paddleboard and said, "Do you think you'd ever like to be a lifeguard?" And I've never been approached by MI5 or any secret agency, but this was <laughs> definitely more exciting. And so then I became a lifeguard, Tapped and it was on ass- the shoulder. Yeah, the tap on the shoulder, um, and. I then found out about eight weeks later that I was pregnant. So I spent my life guarding career looking like a kind of elephantine lollipop in red shorts and a yellow sweatshirt and a huge (laughs) bulging middle. And then the following summer, I took some casual shifts where I was still breastfeeding. And so I had this lovely moment where my partner would come and bring my son to the railings and I would feed him and then pass him back over. It was great. Um, But I now live in Oxford and... We don't have a ladies' pond here, but we do have the big old Father Thames, which currently looks like a kind of foaming, silty brown open sewer. But I'm still getting in every day and it's still incredible. And actually, this morning I swam in, there's a lake uh, fairly near me that has a very handy sign that says no swimming that you can put your towel on (laughs) when you go for a swim. And uh, it was absolutely glorious. There was a collection of cormorants that looked like some kind of um undertaking convention you know they're, they're sort of somber long black cloaks and there was a, a, a golden glittery kind of um seeds and pollen in the water and lined by trees and it wasn't too cold yet Ed, is it it's not it's not gone cold
3: no 15 i were well, most recently um nothing saying, which is
6: A bath, a warm bath, 15 degrees. You've not noticed
2: any strange mutations from swimming in this silty brown water? Have you got an extra arm growing out of your back or anything?
6: I haven't even got gills, Jeff. I'm really disappointed. (laughs) All of this and I've gained no no superpowers or anything. Probably a fairly iron stomach, I would say, and um, extremely sharp lats. But that's about it. What was your experience of being a lifeguard at the ladies pond like? It's the absolute dream, best job I've ever had. It was wonderful from, you know, attending to the moorhens that had made a nest in our rowing boat to you know, trying to talk a very polite older woman into the fact that she was actually having an asthma attack and she did need my help because everyone is so kind and generous. They don't want to bother you, even though that's what you're there for. And then also the really fun things in sort of height of summer, turning up to, you know, unlock the gate and just finding sort of flagpoles of knickers and bras (laughs) discarded, which was absolutely great and always really made me laugh. And to see, you know, friendships being formed and so many people going through really transformative periods of grief or menopause or, you know, new mothers or, you know, teenagers. And I think to witness all of that is really amazing. And it reminds you that water, swimming, just being in nature is sort of fundamental to how we process, you know, our emotions and the world and our place in everything. So I've sort of carried that around with me ever since, I think.
2: Is that community aspect of it still part of your swimming?
6: Yeah. I mean, the thermos touting dry robe brigade of menopausal women, you'll find them everywhere. And I love them. And I am very proud to sort of be a a young member of them. And But I've, you know, travelled, I went to Berlin, France, Sweden, and you find swimmers wherever you, you know, if you are of that ilk, and you're willing to strip off next to a sort of slightly puddly <laughs> bit of water surrounded by geese and, and jump in, you'll find other people that want to jump in with you. And I think it's really beautiful. And, you know, there is a safety aspect, of course, about having other people there when you're swimming. But also for me, there's just the joy of experiencing that alongside like-minded people, whether it's the sea or a lake or a river. You will find your kind of tribe that way. And I have to say, we've been married for about eight years. My husband has finally started swimming with a group of men Imagine that. They get into the river together on a Sunday morning after years and years of me inviting him and him very politely saying no. What what, what tipped him over the edge? <laughs> um, was it a midlife crisis? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> I think uh, another dad at the school said, do you want to come and have a swim every Sunday morning? And at that point, he probably could have said, Do you want to come and play tiddlywinks in a car park every Sunday morning? And because we've got a small child, he would have been delighted to take up any offer. (laughs) But he loves it, you know, and it's really it's a nice thing that because it is very female heavy, I think, outdoor swimming, or at least seems that way from me. But I, I like seeing the kind of Wim Hof men who take it incredibly seriously and they're like pulsing and breathing and, you know, being very... Rugged about it. And then there's always someone like me who's sort of slipping in an eight pound secondhand swimming costume. And there was a woman at the pond who used to swim wearing just rubber gloves. She didn't have any sort of neoprene. She just went regular (laughs) washing up marigolds marigolds, yeah, (laughs) and a woolly hat. And I think you can sort of undercut the machismo of wild swimming incredibly easily.
2: Are you listening to this, Ed? Because
6: this this guy
2: is constantly Googling what the latest advancements in open water swimming technology are. You're
6: a gear guy.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah marigold. I am, a, I am slightly a, a gear guy. Why don't you tell Nell about your little thermometer?
3: <laughs> oh yeah, I got a I got a um a, a Zapper uh which would tell me what the temperature was. Although in response they've got a more accurate temperature. I think I can now rely on Dan's Dan's the lifeguard, uh Dan's temperature gauge. They they upgraded
6: Is that because you believe that you should swim for a minute for every degree it is? I've heard this. This is one of those sort of rumours that goes around the swimming world. I think it's a a bit of an urban myth, I think, actually. I've got a friend who does 65 strokes minimum, which I think is really impressive. She's Canadian and she goes swimming. When she was living in Germany, she'd go out with a hammer and smash a hole in the ice and swim in there and do her 65 strokes. Unbelievably rugged Viking woman that she is. And you
3: go through the winter now, yeah?
6: Of course. Of course. I think when I was probably about 22, I met a woman, um, she was in her 80s and she just said, oh, well, one year I just saw, sort of saw how long I could carry on for. And before I knew it, it was February. And I thought, OK, well, if she can do it, um, maybe I can have a go. And short, you do
3: short, but I mean, we've, we've just heard Professor Mike on, who's given us very legitimate warnings about being careful. Yeah. Um, do you do it for short periods, long periods? Oh,
6: mate, I'm in for an hour, hour and no, a half. I no, I, um, I I do a dip. Also, yeah. I should say, swimming in the river here in the Thames or the Charwell, this bit of Oxford, winter is particularly bad for sort of the old floating sewage and nasty sort of storm drain opening habits of our privatised water system. So I would, in the winter... It's not just hopping in and out, it's hopping in and out, not putting your head under it, not having any cuts, all of that kind of thing. But you can always find, you know, we're lucky, you can always find somewhere that is less polluted to jump in and out.
3: What do you make of the massive growth in open water,
6: cold water swimming that there's been? I'm horrified by it. They should all stop. (laughs) (laughs) It's stupid, dangerous and narcissistic and I don't know why they're doing it. No, I think it's wonderful. I think... I've never been more inundated with messages from people desperately trying to find somewhere they can go swimming than during the lockdowns. I think people were absolutely ravenous for that feeling of escape and freedom and trusting your own body again. You know, once things had relaxed and lifted and we were able to do our exercise outside, people were desperate to get to rivers and lakes and streams and seas and and feel kind of liberated again. I would say, as a woman, I think it's really important to... Do something where your body is celebrated for the strength and resilience it has, and so it's comp- like swimming is not about how you look. Sorry, Ed, I'm sure you look fantastic. They but- sent me a photo; it's <laughs> magnificent. But definitely it's, not. I think after I had a after I had a baby, I remember he was about a month old and swimming through the sort of beginnings of ice, and you can hear it cracking. And I was floating in this sort of completely frigid, cold, quiet, untroubled pond and thinking no one can reach me here. You know, this is the antithesis of all the responsibility of motherhood and the kind of chaos of hormones and the fluctuating anxiety of responsibility. And here I am just in my body, in the world, and it's such a magic feeling. And I think, you know, there's lots of um, research into effects on dementia and hormone levels and general sort of lifelong breeziness, I have no idea if it's going to work. Maybe my body is going to disintegrate in two years time and I'll just be a pile of desiccated coconut. But for the moment, I think it's really helpful. I think it's really good. And I like the idea that I am using my body in a way that just makes me feel like a kind of Nordic hero rather than a product of sort of capitalism and consumerism and something to buy.
2: So it's that magic feeling of Nordic heroism rather than the the list of benefits which are still being researched that you're interested in?
6: Yeah, I was doing this way before I thought about benefits. I just liked the f I liked the feeling of being brave and being alone or being um rugged. I've always wanted to be rugged. You know, for a woman who spends eight hours a day sitting in front of a computer wearing two fleeces, I love the idea that I'm a very rugged (laughs) child of nature underneath. I think it's great.
3: Us rugged children of nature, Jeff. (laughs) Jeff, you too could be a rugged child of nature. Yeah. I don't think so.
2: There's nothing rugged about me.
6: Your eyes could gleam like mine and Ed's. Your gills could flap in the wind. You're saying my eyes aren't (laughs) gleaming. Gleam even more. (laughs)
2: something up with this filter well look Nell Frizzell we share this passion
3: for outdoor cold water wild swimming Uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you thank you so much
6: thank you anytime you need a towel holder Ed just let me know I'll happily stand by (laughs) (laughs) you're on Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com.
0: Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
2: Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. Did all that good talk earlier. Does that inspire you to make a nice autumnal stew? Get a stew going this weekend? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. What's a good autumnal dish? Vegetable soup. Pumpkin pie? Pumpkin pie. If you want to go sweet, of course, the pecan pie is a classic. Yes, but just to anything hearty. It's that time of year where you start eating heartily. I think that is true. I mean, to be honest, I think this episode has sort of inspired me to do more cold water swimming. I thought you were going to say to um, to create your own gourd display. Well, also that. <laughs> Some nice foliage around. We're
3: keen on foliage. Should we thank our guests? We should. Uh, I'd like to thank Kate Rue, Mike Tipton,
2: and Nell Frizzell. We love talking to them. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDance. Ed Seed composed music. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Geoff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to Be Cheerful.